2: in that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: How do you do? Jen and Cam feel it would be unkind to present this program without a friendly word of warning. We are about to unfold our true crime podcast a podcast of lifelong friends who seek to examine crimes which were committed without reckoning upon God. The discussion will be frank, and the subject matter will be of a grim and violent nature. I think it will thrill you. It might even horrify you. So, if there are young children listening, or if you feel unwilling to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you.
1: Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm Fantabuloso. How are you? Woohoo. I'm doing great. Everything's coming up roses. Everything's coming (laughs) up roses. There are quite a few thorns, though, let me tell you. There is, but we're not going to hear to talk about that. We're here to talk
3: about a listener suggestion and research. We have another one today. And I will tell you that we absolutely love it when our listeners request cases or do research or write cases for us. It's fantastic. We love to share in the duties of the podcast,
1: I guess, right? Yes, sharing's caring.
3: Sharing is caring.
1: You know, if you're interested in maybe writing or maybe getting into podcasting, it's a good way to kind of kind of slowly put your toes in the water. Exactly. And, what and we're about. always here. I mean,
3: you submit everything to us, we'll go over it. We'll, of course, change it to fit our vernacular and all that kind of good stuff but we always love to hear from you all so if you have an idea or want to do something you can send it to our true crime podcast at gmail.com well let's go i'm excited ready well this episode was written to one of our listeners it wasn't written i'm sorry it was researched by gabriel balsera which i hope i've said that correctly he did all the research for this episode. If you haven't figured out by the title, it's about Bob Burdella, the Kansas City butcher. And the reason why he was so interested in this case is because his parents actually met the butcher when they went shopping at his store at the Westport or That's, at Westport in Kansas City.
1: That is so creepy. Isn't it
3: creepy? Very creepy. So, all right, here we go. On April 2nd, 1988, Kansas City, Missouri, 22-year-old Christopher Bryson surveyed the room, looking for an object that would help free him of his binding. For four days, Christopher had been held hostage and was slowly losing hope that he would ever make it out alive. With his hands bound in front of him, he slowly shuffled towards the book of matches that his captor had left out. Hoping and praying, Christopher lit the matches one by one, and began to burn through the rope that tied his hands together. Luckily for him, his captor was at work and wasn't around to hear the scuffle or smell the sulfur of the burning matches. Once Christopher had freed himself from the ropes, he looked around and realized that he had two options. One was to jump out of the second-story window, and the other was to stay and be subjected to more torture. Christopher decided to leap out the second-story window and broke a bone in his foot by oh, would, doing so. I would um, do that too. It's a much better option. Breaking all your bones in your body would be a better option, honestly. Yes. Once free from this house of horrors, Christopher ran towards the first person he could find. That person happened to be a meter reader who was out checking the meters of the house in the area. When the man looked up, he saw Christopher running completely naked, wearing nothing but a dog collar. He noticed Christopher was beaten, bloodied, and bruised. The meter reader, knowing something was wrong, took Christopher to safety and called the police. guess you would know something was wrong, correct? I mean, if you see somebody naked in a dog collar that's bloodied, you'd know something was not right.
1: You would think so, but this harks back to Jeffrey Dahmer with the poor boy running down the street.
3: And that's later, we do find out that at first, when the police talk to this guy, they think it's some kind of lover spat. But I digress. As the police arrived to the scene, Christopher explained how he'd been kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and tortured over the course of four days. He led the officers to 4315 Charlotte Street, where he had been held captive. And this would be the first time we would hear of Robert Bob Burdella as we now know him as the Kansas City Butcher. Robert Andrew Berdella Jr., or as he went by Bob, was born to Robert Sr. and Mary Burdella on January 31st, 1949 at Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. Robert Burdella Sr. and Mary were strict Catholic parents and instilled religion into Bob and his younger brother. Those who knew Bob as a child described him as Quote, an odd loner who rarely socialized with other children. And this wasn't by choice either. Perdella was frequently bullied by other children for his big, thick glasses and his stutter. And of course, this made school a living hell for the young boy. Relentlessly being bullied by other children stunted Bob's social skills, and he retreated into his own little world. It didn't help that Bob's father was emotionally abusive to him and his brother. In his father's eyes, Bob was a complete failure since he wasn't interested in sports and didn't like physical activity. And this was a stark contrast to his younger brother, who was quite the athlete, leading Berdella Sr. to constantly compare Bob to his younger brother and telling him what a disappointment he was. It's always so infuriating when parents do that. It really is. Bob also claimed that his father would beat him with a leather belt for misbehaving and being a disappointment to the family. With years of abuse, Bob's mind slowly began to change, and a violent streak had been awakened in him. Bob's true evil lurked deep inside him, and it wouldn't be until many years later that Kansas City would feel his wrath. Bob's teenage years were not much better, and as he reached puberty, he realized that he was gay. Coming from a strong Catholic household, Bob knew he had to keep his secret hidden through fear of either being severely beaten by his father or disowned by the family altogether. Instead, Bob wore a mask by pretending to be someone that he wasn't. He dated girls and even had a steady girlfriend for a very short period of time. But he was also rude and condescending towards females. When Bob was 16, his father died of a heart attack at just 39 years old. The Berdellos were visiting a family in Canton, Ohio for Christmas, and Bob hadn't gone with them. Why, we don't know. But it wasn't until the family returned home days later that Bob had found out that his father had passed. Bob was devastated, but the death of his father seemed to be a turning point for him. He began to feel more confident in himself, which often projected as arrogance. Following his father's death, Berdello was conflicted by a range of emotions. He was sad that his father has passed away, but somehow happy that he was finally able to escape his abusive grip and not have to live in his brother's shadow. With nowhere else to turn, Bob went to the only place he knew, the Catholic Church. They welcomed the Berdella family with open arms and supported the family during the time of need. However, for Bob, this brought him no comfort. Organized religion wasn't able to answer the questions he had spinning in his head. So he decided to branch out into other faiths, which some say included Satanism. Also that same year, Bob saw the film adaptation of John Fowle's book, The Collector. Now, this novel in itself has had its fair share of serial killers that claim that it was their inspiration for Mm -hmm. killing, their motivation or their inspiration, actually. Sorry. And for those that aren't familiar with the book or the premise of the book, it's basically a story of a man who kidnaps a woman that he's obsessed with. He holds her captive in hopes that she will be forced to love him or she'll just fall in love with him. And he will keep her as part of, I guess, as a collection. And in Bob's own words, the film adaptation had a long lasting impression on him and it planted the seeds of what was
1: yet to come. I think that book actually influenced a lot of killers. There's a famous one, and, I, and maybe it's him. I'm not sure. I just know that there's a famous killer. that There's uh, Christopher Wilde. There's him. There's at least four. Leonard
3: Lake and Charles Ng. Those, those are pretty big. It's Christopher Wilder, Robert Bardello, and Ariel Castro. Those are the big four. After high school, Bob moved to Kansas City, Missouri to study at the Kansas City Art Institute. He did really well his first year, but by the second year, he was changing. Students who are in the same classes as Bob described him as odd and outlandish. Those around him at art school described him how he fell into using drugs and alcohol and would even sell drugs that the students had given him for extra cash. At 19, he was arrested for selling methamphetamines and giving a five-year suspended sentence but within a month of his, he was arrested again for possession of LSD and marijuana. Charges were later dropped due to lack of evidence. More disturbingly was his art pieces often included some form of animal abuse, leading him to be an outcast by his classmates. Not to really go into it, but for one instance, he tortured a duck and a chicken in front of his classmates, for an art installment or an installation, I guess. And he also fed a dog tranquilizers just to see what would happen. Did the dog die? They all died, yes. Oh, Jesus. He was constantly pushing boundaries of what was acceptable, and sometimes he just totally jumped over those boundaries and went into the red. But in 1969, Bob left the Kansas City Art Institute after college administrators harshly criticized his art
1: piece of the killing and cooking of a duck. That's just not right. Did he do it? Did he butcher yes. it like ethically and then cook it?
3: I don't know. It doesn't go into graphic detail. But still, I mean, there's a weird, fine there, line.
1: There is. But I think. Piss Christ. All, all I got to say. That's all I got to say about that. I like, know. I know. You know but, what I mean? People butcher animals every day and eat them. But he is a serial killer. And he probably got but, some. Well,
3: but this was also a school piece, too. I wouldn't expect anything this avant-garde to be in a classroom setting. One thing, to do it on a stage somewhere and not affiliated by a school. I mean, there's a certain decorum that the school has to keep, correct? Yeah, but it depends on the school. And and art is subjective, I know, but he was criticized. He didn't get kicked out. He actually left, I believe. Mm. He wasn't kicked out, but they didn't like what he did. And they made sure he knew that they didn't like it. Mm -hmm. To pay off some of the fees and fines that he had of his drug arrests, Bob found a job as a short order cook in different Kansas City restaurants. He even began selling some of his antiques that he had collected as a child. And as he became a better chef, he started to work at some of the better restaurants and country clubs in the area. His skills became so good at cooking that he even helped and taught training classes at a community college. And another way Bob made some extra cash, he started owning and breeding chow-chow dogs. You know what a chow-chow dog is? Mm-hmm. It's those huge, hairy dogs that almost look like bears. Mm-hmm.
1: They have a Sometimes black they're
3: aggressive. Yeah, they have a black tongue. They're not chihuahuas, because some of them, some oh, people, well, maybe those chihuahuas, chow-chows. No, they're chows. I know Martha Stewart had one. They're kind of like a reddish-brown, and they're really, really furry. Mm. They're cute dogs. They're big. They're medium to large dogs. In 1970s, Bob moved into a yellow house with brown trim at 4315 Charlotte Street. This is in the historic neighborhood and city park called Hyde Park in the area of Kansas City, Missouri. He was living his life as an openly gay man and he had, as he had been for several years. His neighbors considered him to be a bit flamboyant and snobbish, even though his home was a bit dilapidated. Dilapidated, sorry. Bob had started taking in lodgers and those living on the fringes of society. Male prostitutes, petty criminals, runaways, and drug addicts. He would take them under his wing and try to help them get clean or steer them away from a life of crime. He told his neighbors that he felt like a foster parent to those that he took in. Bob was insistent that he never had any physical contact with any of these men in the 70s. But by the early 80s, that wasn't the case. Bob was starting to manipulate these downtrodden men. He would loan them money or offer them a free place to live in exchange for sex. Basically became a predator. Mm-hmm. In 1982, Bob decided to quit the restaurant business and just sell his antiques and oddities. So he rented a booth at the Westport Flea Market. His business which he named Bob's Bazaar Bazaar, B-A-Z-A-A-R-B-I-Z-A-R-R-E. sold jewelry, antiques, and oddities like shrunken heads and such, and all sorts of stuff. He had Roman glass. Where does
1: one buy shrunken heads for sale? Well,
3: nowadays they're not real. They're manufactured, but I think he did a lot of, black market deals to get some of the stuff he had. He had like African tribal wear and things that most people wouldn't actually get the normal way. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a lot of black market. I might be wrong about that, so don't quote me, but it was hard to find things that seemed weird
1: Mm -hmm.
3: to get. While working at the flea market, Bob found a good friend in a local merchant, Paul Howell. And like Bob, Paul Howell rented a booth and sold his products at the flea market. After striking up a friendship, Paul introduced him to his 19-year-old son, Jerry, who was also a male sex worker. And little did Paul know that he had just introduced his son to the man that would take his life. And like I said earlier, this is where the story of Bob Burdella becomes very dark. The details of his crime are extremely graphic, and listener discretion is advised pay heed to Edward October's warning. Be careful. If you're going to be triggered, I suggest listening to some of our other back-ish episodes. Bob's first kill appears to have been premeditated and carefully planned out, and it's surprising to see a serial killer so organized for their first kill. Despite taking in young man through the 70s and 80s, it wouldn't be until 1984 that the butcher's lust for blood and sadism truly shone through. Bob picked up Jerry Howell on July 5th after promising to take him to a dance in Merriam, Kansas. Bob and Jerry had been somewhat close since Bob and Jerry's father, Paul, had been such close friends. So once Jerry got into the car, Bob gave him a few drinks under the guise of giving him some liquid courage for the dance. We all know how that goes. Did that when I was younger. I didn't. You never drank for courage, Camille? Mm -mm. I beg to differ. (laughs) I beg to differ. What Jerry didn't know was that these drinks had been spiked with volume and as a promazine, I hope I spelled that right, which is primarily used as a chemical restraint in hyperactive, fierce animals. Once Jerry was too intoxicated to notice that he wasn't heading towards Miriam, Bob drove him to his home at 4315 Charlotte Street. And as if spiking Jerry's drinks weren't enough, Bob then injected Jerry with a tranquilizer before tying him to a bed. This would be Bob's modus operandi. This is what he would do with all of his victims. Over the course of 28 agonizing hours, Jerry Howell was subjected to sadistic torture. Burdella first stripped him of all of his clothing before sexually and physically assaulting him. Burdella sodomized him with multiple items and even used household objects. And he really liked using vegetables, just FYI. The reason we know so much about Bradella and his crimes is that he liked to keep a notebook. He wrote down everything that he did. He would log his torture hour by hour describing what he did to his victims and how they reacted. Bob would note whether he himself satomized him or whether he used a foreign object.
1: Did he do this as he was doing it or did he reflect? He
3: would do it as like a science experiment from but what I'm, it sounds say, like. Would
1: he, would he write the like notes he down? Like he would
3: do it and then write the note. After it was then, done? or After he, that thing was done. Okay. And then when he would do something else, he would, to me, it sounds like he would log it like a science experiment. Medical experiment. Like yep. he wouldn't go later and say, this dear diary This is what I did to Jerry. First, I I did this. Yeah, he would like, I believe, and he even, I'll talk about it later, but he even had like shorthand for himself.
1: Hmm.
3: Bob also took Polaroid pictures of Jerry and would continue to do so with each victim, allowing him to relive his crimes whenever he wanted. After the long 28 hours, Jerry passed away. In the book by Tom Jackman entitled Rites of Burial, the horrific account of sadistic serial killer Berdella. Quote, Jerry either asphyxiated on his own vomit or the combination of the gag and the medicines were too strong for him to be able to catch his breath. What Berdella did next proved that he clearly thought this through for a very long time. Jerry's body was taken to the basement and hung on a hook before Berdella made several incisions to drain the body of blood. Then using boning knives and a chainsaw Della dismembered Jerry, wrapped his body parts into trash bags, and placed them outside in the trash. The next morning, the sanitation workers took away the bags without noticing there was a body inside.
1: I guess it wouldn't, there would be really an odor. I guess the trash odor would cover it up, since it was But it would
3: be, since it would be the next day, so it would be fresh. And or, I, or, yeah. Exactly. Jerry's parents quickly reported him missing and demanded answers from. Berdella, because they knew he was with Bob that night. Burdella was questioned by the police and said that he had taken Jerry to Miriam, but they had separated at the dance and Bob hadn't seen him since. The police had no other, no reason to question him. Any further, I should say. Question him any further. It's unclear why Jerry chose his first victims, but according to one source, Jerry owned Burdella money. So maybe it was the anger that pushed Berdella. To want to kill him, or just maybe he just wanted to see how much pain he could inflict on someone. We don't know. Berdella's next victim was 23-year-old Robert Sheldon. Sheldon had previously lodged with Berdella during the time where he took in young men that were kind of down on their luck. On April 10th, 1985, needing a safe place to stay, Sheldon returned to 4315 Charlotte Street, never to be seen alive again. Much like the murder of Jerry Howell, Sheldon was drugged and given alcohol to subdue him. Once he was completely incapacitated, Berdella tied him to the bed and began his sick torture. Not content with his previous methods, Berdella decided that it was time to step it up a notch. Sheldon's hands were bound so tightly with piano wire that had he survived, he would have suffered permanent nerve damage to his hands, rendering them almost useless. Hmm. Berdella wasn't attracted to Robert Sheldon, but he did consider him an inconvenience. Someone he could, quote, express some of the anger and frustration that I had towards other people on.
1: He just seems to be making all kinds of excuses. I think. Mm-hmm.
3: Sheldon was subjected to three miserable days of sadistic torture. Berdella repeatedly sodomized and physically assaulted him. stuck needles under Sheldon's fingernails, swabbed Drano or some kind of drain cleaner into his left eye, and he put caulk into his ears so Sheldon wouldn't be able to know when Bob came into the room to torture him. I had no idea he was this twisted. Oh, it's bad. After three days of unbearable torture, workmen had been scheduled to come to fix... Bordella's roof, and Bordella had to decide what to do next, so he didn't want to get caught. Bordella placed a sack over Shelton's head and tightened it with rope, which caused Shelton to suffocate. Shelton's body was again dissected, with Bordella opting to dispose of his body around the property. Once again, he drained the blood, he cut him to pieces, and buried his body throughout the yard. With each victim, Berdella's torture became more and more sadistic. Mark Wallace would be next in line to feel Berdella's wrath. In June of 1986, Berdella found Mark Wallace in his tool shed. Mark was in there sheltering from a severe storm that had hit the area. Wallace knew Berdella because he had done some yard work for him in the past. Berdella invited Wallace into the house. And... He started commenting on Wallace's health, saying that he looked a bit anxious. Mm-hmm. And you know mm-hmm. what, Mark? I can give you something that's going to help soothe that anxiety and depression. do it, Mark. All Don't right? take it. Don't take it. So Wallace agreed. And before you know it, Berdella injected him with chlorpromazine, which is an antipsychotic drug. This quickly knocked Wallace out and Berdella bound him up. And once again, Berdella wanted to push the boundaries of what he called his, quote, experimentation of how much pain the human body could tolerate.
2: Mm.
3: Uh, This kills me. Wallace was hooked up to a 7,700 volt transformer by alligator clips placed on his nipples, which sent shocks of electricity over and over again until his body could no longer take it. It had been speculated that Wallace died as a result of asphyxiation from a cocktail of drugs and the gag that had been forced into his mouth. And Berdella noted that Wallace had died one hour after he had experimented putting hypodermic needles into different muscles in Wallace's back. The time of death was 7 p.m. on June 23rd. Hey, Cam, I was just unpacking from Kansas City and I realized that I
1: don't have my love letter by Zeman Games card game. I hope you picked it up. Actually, I do have it. And you know what? I taught the kids to play and we are enjoying it so much. We actually play every night right before dinner. It's so simple to learn and easy. They had it down in no time. You just draw a card and play a card on your turn using the character's abilities to stay in the round and get your Love Letter closer to the princess. All you need is two to six players, ages 10 and up, and 20 minutes to play. By the time the game was over, it was time to eat dinner.
3: Love Letter is 11 and comes with a velvet drawstring bag so you can take it anywhere. You can get your own copy of Love Letter at Target, your local game store, and directly through Z-Man web store, ZmanGames.com. That's Z-M-A-N-G-A-M-E-S dot com.
1: He is a sadistic mofo.
3: Burdella's next victim was James Ferris. Ferris had called Burdella looking for a place to stay for a few days. Burdella agreed to let him stay knowing that he would be torturing this poor soul. Now, this is where Berdella really stepped up the torture. The details of the first three victims are hard to stomach, but it only gets worse from here on out. Berdella attached the electric alligator clips to his neck and testicles and administrated him with the 77,000 volts of electricity, causing excruciating pain.
1: Sometimes the shocks of electricity would last up to five minutes. I would think you would pass out from the pain. I hope, for their sake, they passed out from the pain. Burdella would take hyperdermic needles and stick them into Ferris's neck and testicles.
3: And during the whole ordeal, Ferris was drugged, bound, and gagged. During moments of lucidness, he would beg Burdella to let him go, promising that he would, could walk away. And he would walk away and just never tell anybody what had happened. Like all the other victims, Ferris was sodomized by Bordello and with various household objects too. After being subjected to inhumane amounts of electricity and other means of torture, Ferris died. The final note that Bordello wrote in his torture log of Ferris was eighty six, which in American slang means to throw out or get rid of, or to refuse service to. You know, that's eighty-six it. At- right. Ferris's body was not found at Burdella's home, and it is largely believed that, like Howell, Ferris was dismembered and thrown into trash bags. Now, Berdella was on a roll and deep into a serial killing rampage. Four victims under his belt and no hint that the Kansas City police were on to him. And he felt very confident to continue. His fifth victim would be 26-year-old Todd Stoops. Now, Todd, once again, had previously lived with Berdella when he was down on his luck. However, this time, Stoops had misplaced his trust in Berdella and had no idea that he was walking into a torture chamber of a serial killer. Berdella later admitted that he was physically attracted to Stoops, or to Stoop. So he was held hostage for two weeks with the same pattern of abuse and sodomy happening over and over and over again. Burdella realized by this point that electricity was one of his favorite methods of torture, and he continued with his sick torment. The disturbing Polaroid pictures of Stoop are perhaps the most infamous and are the first images to come to mind when you mention the name Bob Burdella. Burdella's mind became more and more perverted, and instead of administering electrical shocks to Stoop's testicles, he went directly for his eyes. He also injected his throat with drain cleaner in hopes that it would remove his ability to scream. In Burdella's mind, if he was successful, he would no longer need to use a gag and remove the risk of his victims choking to death, allowing him to keep them alive and torture them for much longer. Stoop died on July 1st, 1986, as a result of septic shock after Burdella rupted his anal walls with his fist.
1: Oh my god!
3: Burdella left his body in the house and continued to take photographs of him after his, he had passed.
1: We needed to put a really big disclaimer Morning on this. On one. this I'm yes. telling you. Oh my God.
3: The last victim of Bob Burdella was 20 year old Larry Pearson. The two had met when Larry went to Burdella's shop. Larry temporarily lived with Burdella in exchange for doing some work around the house. Common for this episode. Berdella claimed that he didn't intend for Pearson to be a victim, but after bailing him out of jail for robbing gay men, Berdella decided he had to do so. Like the other victims, Pearson was drugged, subdued, and found himself bound to Berdella's bed. Pearson was held for over six weeks, during which time he was subjected to some of the most horrific and sadistic torture humanly possible. Like all of the other victims, Pearson was beaten, sodomized, and administered with electricity. Burdella also bashed his hands with an iron rod so he could not attempt to escape. Burdella wanted to keep Pearson alive for much longer, and he didn't really want to kill him. But in a moment of rage, after Pearson bit down on his penis, when Berdella tried to force it, his penis in Pearson's mouth, Burdella beat him. Then placed a bag and rope over his head and suffocated him. And once Pearson was dead, Berdella drove himself to the hospital for the wound that the bite had made. Once again, Berdella took extensive notes and multiple Polaroid photos of Pearson, both while he was alive and after he was dead. Pearson was dismembered and buried in Berdella's back garden. But at first, Berdella kept Pearson's head in the freezer before deciding to bury it in the backyard. Now we're back to 22-year-old Christopher Bryson, and he's the only one of Berdella's victims to make it out of the house. Is he, alive. Still, is
1: he still alive? I hope I so. I believe so. Oh I believe he's got a new identity and everything. Mm.
3: Now we, of course, talked about how he escaped at the beginning of the episode. Christopher Bryson was a sex worker and was lured to Berdella's house when Burdella picked him up for sex. Berdella said, let's go upstairs. When they did... Berdella picked up an iron pipe, knocked him over the head, tied him up to the bed, and started to inject him with sedatives. And
1: this is his friend's son,
3: correct? No, no, no. He already killed his friend's okay. son. All way, right. His was, friend's son was the first, first one. victim, okay. and he also was a male prostitute. This was a totally different okay. male prostitute. And he actually picked him up off the street. Like, he, Christopher was out working, and Bob came along. And supposedly a lot of the sex workers kind of knew that Bob was no good. So they stayed away from him. And I guess Christopher didn't get that memo mm. and fell victim, literally fell victim. Burdello kept him sedated and gagged the entire four days that he was held hostage. Bryson endured rape, electric shop, cotton swabs with bleach or ammonia swabbed in his eyes mm-hmm. and his hands were battered with an iron pipe. And once again, from the book Rites of Burial, Badella told Bryson, quote, you did not choose to be here, but you are. For you to survive being here and for you to know, make it, it would either be rough or it could be easy. If I grow to like you and to trust you, then I could do special things for you, such as buy you cigarettes, pick up a movie on the way home from work and so forth. Don't try to fight me or you'll get more of what you had earlier. You see." What you got is nothing compared to what I have. Basically, he was Bradella's sex toy. I... Like everybody else that he victimized and murdered. Bryson was powerless and, and at the mercy of Bob Burdella, And instead of trying to fight him, Bryson realized that his best chance of survival was to do just as Berdella said and to make, like, try to befriend him, basically. After slowly gaining his trust and enduring the sadistic torment, Bryson was able to escape and call the Kansas City Police Department. And while Bryson was being taken into custody, the police got a warrant and other officers were called to the 4315 Charlotte Street to wait for Bradella. When he arrived at 11:30, Bradella was arrested for investigation of sexual assault. And like I said, at first they just thought the police heard all these stories from this naked, bloodied, and bruised boy basically 22 year old and they thought it was a lover spat 1988 phobia, huge and out they just thought it was a lover spat mm-hmm. like jeffrey dahmer right mm-hmm. like we said the kansas city police department arrived at the scene after 2 p.m on april 2nd 1988 animal control had gone into the house first to gather the three dogs that were in the house there were two adult dogs and one puppy. When the officers entered the house, they were amazed by the amount of stuff that was in the house. He was a hoarder. And from what I read, seriously, he could have been an episode of the TV show called The Hoarders. There were stacks of paper and books and magazines, trash bags filled with clothes and trash just laying all over the place. The officer said the house smelled of dog feces
1: and rotting food. He was too busy to clean. He was torturing people.
3: They found a rotting turkey carcass in a pot on the stove and dirty dishes piled high in the sink. And at one point, the detectives played a game where they called, quote, who stepped in it, (gasps) meaning dog feces, because the smell was so pungent everywhere they went. Some of the officers even started wearing the white paper overalls and plastic booties to keep the grime and crap
1: off their shoes and clothes. I totally would. It's disgusting. I was just going to say, I wondered if part of the reason he did that was so that there wouldn't be smell of, I don't know, decay.
3: Or he could just, the house was dilapidated. He never took care of the house at all. So he could have just been a lazy bitch too. Yeah. Who knows? He obviously was mentally ill. So that's a different story. In one of the upstairs bedroom next to a bed was a metal tray with syringes, bottles of prescription drugs ointments, and eye drops. On the floor by the bed, they found the electric transformer. Across the room on a cabinet shelf, they found a shoebox filled with Polaroids of the naked Christopher Bryson. In some of the photos, he had some sort of bag or f- pillowcase over his head. Others, he was face down with his hands bound behind his back. In all of them, it looked like he was in pain and was being tortured. There was a brown wallet belonging to James Ferris, victim number four, on the shelf. Also had his driver's license in it. Some of the books they found on the shelf had titles like How to Create Poisons and Antidotes to Them, and Satanic Interpretation and Lifestyle. They also found a human skull and two envelopes filled with human teeth. The skull would later be identified as Richard Sheldon's. In one room, the police would later call the torture room, they found the wire bound stenographer pad that Berdella had kept his meticulous notes about the torturing of his victims. All in all, they recovered 334 Polaroid photos in a plastic bag. Of the pictures they found, there were 19 naked men. Some of the pictures, they were being tortured, others were dead or comatose. One picture, they found a man hanging upside down by his ankles in what looked like the basement. So being detectives, they headed downstairs. There they found dried blood on a stack of dog food and blood spatter on the lid of a styrofoam cooler. Later, luminol would be sprayed into the corner of the basement. And in the book Ritual of Burial, they said it lit up like a round pool shape. It was so blue and so bright. Luminol also glowed on a plastic bucket and two plastic trash barrels. They found a chainsaw, and upon further examination, police discovered blood, flesh, and pubic hairs inside the plastic that covers over the engine of the chainsaw. Mm -hmm. In the backyard, police found the partially decomposing head of Larry Pearson, and they found that it was Larry by using dental records. For the Kansas City Police Department, the case against Bob Burdella was pretty much an open and shut case. They had overwhelming physical evidence that they could, of course, present in court. On July 22nd, 1988, a grand jury indicted Burdella for the murder of Larry Pearson. Good. Berdella pled guilty. He also would plead guilty on August 24th to one charge of forcible sodomy against Christopher Bryson. As for the other five murder charges, Berdella originally was going to plead not guilty, but in exchange for giving a full confession and accepting a guilty plea, Berdella was spared the death penalty and given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. When Berdella confessed to the murders, he also gave authority the names of all of his victims. He would also explain all the coded terms in his torture logs. For example, he would write DC, which meant Swabbing drain cleaner in the eyes. Two one half ket in K plus shoulder would indicate that he injected 2.2 cubic centimeters of ketamine into his victim's neck and shoulders. He would put F for the neck vernacular term, you know, to like F U, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And then BF would be for behind doing it behind and then FF would be frontal and it was meticulous Mm. notes like from what I gather like a scientist he wanted to record the human pain capacity. Sick mf -er is what I'm telling you. Berdello was sent to serve his time at the Missouri State Penitentiary in Jeff City or Jefferson City sorry. He used to grant interviews with the news and he would claim that he was Demonized by the media all the time. Of course, it's never his fault. It wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. You are just demonizing me. You know, he just said, "I just made a few mistakes. That's all I did. Just a few mistakes." I'm having a bad day on October eighth, nineteen ninety two, berdella complained of chest pains, and he was taken to the infirmary. And by three fifty five p.m., Robert Andrew Bordella Jr. was pronounced dead after suffering from a heart attack. When Alvin Randall, Burdella's trial judge, was informed of the death, Randall quipped, quote, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. hmm. So for the families of the victims, the devil who walked the earth had finally returned home to hell. And while his death does not bring back any of those victims, their families can rest easier knowing that he is no longer a threat to anyone any longer. Are you done? I am done. I mean, I just want to say a side note. I found out later in November of 88, there was a huge auction or there was going to be a huge auction to sell off Berdella's possessions. You know, they needed to cover his legal funds. And from what I've heard, the auction would have been amazing. They, Like I said earlier, I wrote some of this down. He had 55 pieces of Ciro Roman glass, some thin as paper. He had ancient beads, Tibetan bronze statues, Greco-Roman pottery, Indonesian puppets, African tribal costumes. But the auction was later canceled because one buyer negotiated the price for everything. Don't know how much it is, but he bought everything. Also, the house, the 53 or the 4315 Charlotte Street House, was bought by a local businessman. And he later, it was grazed
1: hmm.
3: to the ground. They burned the M down. I would totally They so. didn't burn it, but you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would hate to see who the what they did with those beds that he
1: tied the people he probably up was, to. Then. If he was a hoarder and disgusting, and it sounds like he was, he probably just slept on them and we lived the fantasy of it happening.
3: No, I'm talking about the people who bought the stuff from Berdella's house. Oh, oh. And then later, I don't know if they would resell it or somebody just decided to get rid of it all.
1: Police officers might have got rid of that, too. I think they might have taken it out and
3: burned it. I don't it. know. But they said everything in the house was sold. I don't know. I don't know the full details. I just read an article. Mm. Two articles, actually.
1: Well. But, yeah. We got to thank our friend Gabe for that because I'm going to have nightmares. Gabriel. Gabriel. Yep. And also, I want to thank Emma Trainter once again. She's the True Crime
3: Witch podcast. She helped write this together for us. So, yeah, creepy mf glad he's gone. Yeah. Mm. Nice to read that obituary.
1: The families do get a little peace. And I know I've said this a million times. If something happened to somebody I loved, I would have a hard time knowing that person's... He could be locked in a one-man cell for the rest of his life. But this whole fact that he is still breathing air, I would have a problem with that. I know I would.
3: I knew the butcher of Kansas city. I always knew the story, but I never like really knew a lot of the details. So uh, I,
1: nor did yeah. I. And uh, yeah, I'm glad I don't now. Let me tell you. Or yeah. didn't. He was, you know what I mean? No, they get to live in your head rip, free. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, that was a mm-hmm. really good one with very, very graphic details. So I hope we, yes. Remember Thanks to do Gabriel that.
3: for uh, bringing it up. Cause I don't know. I probably would have overlooked him and just not, have done him covered his story the victim's stories and uh so yeah until then
1: that's it that's all I have until we see you next week in the same bat time and same bat channel remember lock your doors and keep passing by those open windows (laughs) uh bye bye love ya